Welcome to the August 2008 episode of the Harvard Medical Labcast, Science That's Changing Your World. This podcast is brought to you by Harvard Medical School's Office of Public Affairs in Boston. I'm Alyssa Neller. And I'm David Cameron. And this month, we'll look at global health from a number of different perspectives. First, we'll see how loss of species diversity can directly affect human health. Then, we'll take a look at the emerging problem of drug-resistant tuberculosis, which is plaguing countries worldwide. Plus, using an innovative approach, researchers halt the spread of HIV in an animal model. But first, I had the chance to sit down with Nobel laureate Eric Shivian, director of the Harvard Medical School Center for Health and the Global Environment. So I'm sitting here looking at the front cover of your new book, Sustaining Life, How Human Health Depends on Biodiversity. Explain exactly what is meant by biodiversity. So by what biodiversity means, it's a, it's a shortened form of biological diversity, and it means the variety of life on Earth. And when one refers to a loss of biological diversity, you're, you're referring to a loss of ecosystems, but ultimately you're, you're referring to a loss of species. How, how does that loss affect me and my health? Well, the reason that we put the book together is that the main conversation about how damaging nature affects human health uh, was always discussed mostly in terms of if we lose plants from tropical rainforests, we lose the potential of discovering new medicines. And what concerned me is that that's such a very small piece Mm -hmm. of the story. And so we wanted to catalog uh, what is known about all the myriad ways that losing parts of the natural world affect human health. So the chapter on medicines looks at the whole range of the important medicines that have come from various organisms on Earth. Uh, We wanted to talk about infectious diseases. You know, we have this notion that when we get an infection, we've caught it from another person, and they've in turn caught it from another person. And that, that that infectious agent, that pathogen, has only been in people. Well, for most of our infectious diseases, that's not true. That pathogen has resided in some other organism, whether it's a mosquito or a tick or a mouse or a pig. Therefore, when you affect biodiversity, you are affecting not only pathogens, but you're affecting the diversity of the vectors and the hosts, and you affect patterns of infectious disease. So does that make us more susceptible to something like Lyme disease? That's actually one of the best models that we have. Now, there are, there are also ways of, of reducing biodiversity and reducing disease. You know, if you pave over a swamp, mm-hmm. you don't get any more mosquitoes in that swamp, so you're not going to get some of the diseases they may carry. You may get other problems, but there are many examples where if you decrease biodiversity by deforestation or converting grasslands into farmland, that you actually increase uh, the, the risk of humans getting fairly serious diseases. Although, if I understand you correctly, you're not saying don't turn grassland into farmland, but it's doing, doing things on such a large scale that they start throwing off the ecosystem. Is, is it the scale well, how we do things. it's definitely the scale, but it's also the way we do things. For, for example, if we grow crops as monocultures, in other words, we grow 
all the same crop over a huge area, those crops become quite vulnerable to disease mm -hmm. and to pests. Um, one of the things we talk about in the book is is polycultures, planting different varieties. If you're going to plant corn, plant different varieties of corn. Or intercrop, plant corn, soybeans, corn, wheat, you mm -hmm. know, clover, oats. And there are wonderful examples that show that you get better yields and less disease when you intercrop. And it makes sense. I mean, if you, if you have lots of people in close quarters, all of whom have the same susceptibility to certain diseases, you know, that population is much greater, at greater risk than if you had many different populations of people and you space them out. Could you give us some examples of how our interaction with the environment has impacted human health? Well, both, both short and long term. Uh, you know, the world is very much dependent on our grain export. And the world is, as we've seen, when the prices of petroleum have gone up and the prices of grains have gone up, it's affected populations in Africa and Southeast Asia. Right. Um, right. So it has a definite human health effect. And if our crops are more vulnerable to climatic variation, whether it's drought or flooding or various pest infestations, you know, the, the prime example is the potato famine in, in Ireland. They right. were growing, they were one, growing kind of one type right. of potato. Right. Climate shifted. And they got what's called late potato blight, which wiped out the potato crop, and there was, you know, massive starvation. Um, you mentioned Lyme disease. Let me let me, yeah, yeah, let me no, go please, back to that because it's a yeah. great model. Lyme disease is the most common vector-borne disease in the United States. It has twenty thousand reported cases. In that was what three, four years ago. Um, so Lyme is caused by a spirochete. It's a bacteria. It's transferred by a tick. And there are, uh, there are different hosts. The main, most important host is the white-footed mouse. So it was noticed that in Lyme areas, it was the areas that had very little vertebrate diversity. So some very elegant field experiments showed why there was a correlation between lower levels of vertebrate diversity and increased cases of Lyme. So the tick is an omnivorous feeder. It's, it's attaching itself to any organism that passes it. It waits on the grass blade and as soon as a mouse or a chipmunk or our dogs or our cats or us pass it, it attaches itself. So we get Lyme disease, but we are what are called incompetent or dead-end hosts. In other words, we get the infection. It's in our bloodstream, but if another tick bites us, it can't transfer that infection to another organism. The white-footed mouse, by contrast, is a very competent host. So the tick bites, it gives it Lyme disease. The Lyme bacteria proliferates in the white-footed mouse. And another tick bites it and has a very high percentage of getting that and infection and passing it on to another organism. So if you have a great deal of vertebrate diversity at the forest edge, then the tick is biting lots of different organisms that don't pass on the disease. And it also has some organisms like the white-footed mouse that are competent. 
So the infection gets diluted in this large population of other vertebrates because it doesn't get passed on. So the, the risk of our getting Lyme in that kind of environment is lower. The more vertebrate diversity there is, the more incompetent hosts there are, the less likely we are going to get Lyme. The other thing that happens is that when you have tremendous vertebrate diversity, you have organisms that are keeping the population of ticks down and the population of white-footed mice down because you have predators of mice. Did we get rid of a lot of these vertebrate species by moving so close to the forest edge? Is that We got rid of a lot of those species when we cut down the forest. That's right. So it's an example of loss of biological diversity and an increased risk of a major human vector-borne disease. Well, I think you've definitely given us a whole new perspective here. Um, thanks so much for talking to me today. The doctor told my mom, go home, quit wasting your time here and start saving up for a coffin. For too many patients in developing countries, tuberculosis represents a death sentence. Drug-resistant strains of the bacteria have emerged because diagnosis is slow and treatment is often inadequate. But scientists say there is hope for current patients and the future. I'm Yvonne Riki, and this is a special report on the battle against drug-resistant TB. Salman Kasavji, a Harvard Medical School assistant professor and clinician at Brigham and Women's Hospital, gave me a feel for the scope of the problem. This is a disease that has infected 2 billion people worldwide, that has 8 million cases of active disease, and about 1.8 to 2 million deaths every year. Adding insult to injury, extensively drug-resistant strains of TB, or XDR-TB, have begun to pop up around the globe over the last few years. When a patient has XDR-TB, they are not only resistant to the, the backbone of the first-line treatment, isoniazid and rifampicin, but they're also resistant to the backbone of the second-line treatment, namely the fluoroquinolone and the injectable agent. And this is what makes it so much more difficult to treat, because you end up using second-line drugs other than the backbone, which are not very good, and then turning to third-line drugs, which really have, have very little proven efficacy against tuberculosis. So where has extensively drug-resistant TB surfaced? Carol Mitnick, an epidemiologist in Harvard Medical School's Department of Social Medicine, explains. The extensively drug-resistant TB has been identified most notably in the former Soviet Union and Eastern Europe. And that's largely just because they have the resources and, and the laboratories to actually identify the disease. According to Mitnick, some countries have dealt with XDR-TB better than others. South Africa is an example of kind of a nightmare situation. I mean, a country that actually has fairly substantial resources, but they're not in the hands of those who get this disease. So in South Africa, they're imposing hospitalization and really poor treatment on patients with XDR-TB. So they are forcing them to stay in hospitals. They're putting barbed wire up around these hospitals. There are guards with guns at the hospitals. There was a patient killed trying to escape from one of these hospitals, I mean, to escape from a hospital. It's a horror show. On the sort of other end of the spectrum, you know, a country with fewer resources, but with a more progressive view, in my mind, is what's going on in Peru. So since 1996, treatment for multidrug-resistant tuberculosis has been available in at least a small 
area of Peru, and then that, that expanded over the, over the subsequent 10 years or so. The model in Peru, however, is an ambulatory community-based model. So people are only hospitalized if there's a medical reason for them to be hospitalized. You know, they're given extensive education about protecting their family members, but the idea is that the treatment is delivered to the patient. Mitnick and her colleagues recently published a study on the Peruvian approach in the New England Journal of Medicine. More than 60% of XDR-TB patients were cured after receiving the bulk of their personalized treatment, including an aggressive drug cocktail, either at their own homes or in community-based settings. But Kasavji says there is plenty of room for improvement. He asserts that better diagnostic tests and improved drugs could boost the survival rate. Clinicians currently use a slow diagnostic test that has changed little since the 1800s. Kasavji hopes they will switch to a modern incarnation. So the ideal test, and I think the way we should move in the future, is a test that, first of all, tells you whether you have tuberculosis, either from sputum or urine or from blood. And then secondly, the ideal test would tell you whether you have uh, drug-resistant TB or not. And there are techniques available to do this. That's one thing that I, I hope for the future and I see happening in the future because it's necessary. The second is new drugs. Right now we're using drugs that are not very effective and that require two years to treat a disease. Even cancers, bone marrow transplant patients don't need therapy for two years. There are very few diseases that require that amount of ongoing treatment. Eric Rubin, an HMS assistant professor, toils in his laboratory at Brigham and Women's Hospital with this in mind. The major problem with the old drugs is you have to treat for a very long time. So the, the question, and it is a question that we don't know the answer to, is could you make drugs that treat TB more rapidly? A lot of the problems with drug resistance arise not because people aren't treated, but because they're treated incompletely. So our research is really quite fundamental. It's to try to define what a better drug target would look like. Not a better drug, but what bacterial factors are important in maintaining an infection. We certainly have identified several potential targets, and we're trying to figure out what they do and how we could inhibit them and what would be the consequences of inhibition. Mitnick, for one, is counting on Rubin and other basic scientists in the lab to succeed. It would be a huge boon if there were new drugs for the treatment of MDR-TB and if those new drugs were made accessible and affordable in resource-poor settings. Um, treatment needs to be shorter, it needs to be simpler, it needs to be more effective, it needs to be less toxic. While some developing countries are making headway against drug-resistant TB, HIV is proving tougher to tackle. Despite decades of research, a cure remains elusive. But now, researchers at the Harvard Medical School-affiliated Immune Disease Institute and colleagues have taken a major step toward halting the virus in its tracks. Working in the lab of Premlata Shankar, Preeti Kumar used a process called RNA interference to halt the spread of HIV among cells in an animal model. She delivered small molecules called short interfering RNAs, or siRNAs, directly into T cells. The siRNAs disrupted the activity of three key genes, keeping HIV in check. What's important here is, number one, you can actually use this new technology of RNA interference as a feasible therapy for HIV. Although it's in a small animal model, you know it can work, it can stop HIV, and it can prevent its replication and spread. The second thing is now we have a really novel method for delivering siRNA into T-cells, 
which is one of the cell types that is really difficult to get nucleic acids into. Kumar cautions that labs must verify the findings in other animal models before attempting clinical trials. If they're successful, siRNAs may eventually supplement or replace the harsh drug cocktails currently prescribed to patients with HIV. This concludes the August episode, and we'll leave you with the words of E.O. Wilson. The one process now going on that will take millions of years to correct is the loss of genetic and species diversity by the destruction of natural habitats. This is the folly our descendants are least likely to forgive us. This podcast is a production of Harvard Medical School's Office of Public Affairs, and we'd love to hear your comments on this program. Visit our podcast website at podcast.hms.harvard.edu and tell us what you think or read what other listeners are saying. Music for this episode was arranged by our colleague John Ryan. In order to learn more about Harvard Medical School, our academic and research programs, and our affiliated hospitals and research institutes, visit the Harvard Medicine website at hms.harvard.edu.